Father in heaven, it's so good to be in your presence. Thank you for carving out space for us to be, to rest, to taste, and see that the Lord is good, as the psalmist said. This morning, we pray that you would feed us with your presence, that you would nourish us and satisfy us, that you would strengthen us again by your very word, the words of God. And we ask that we would leave this place today sent back out into our lives with blessing, sent back out into our lives with the grace of God, the mercy of God flowing through our veins, that we'd know that we live in a world that is bathed in the mercy of God and we'd behave accordingly. Thank you for the gift of your presence. Thank you for the gift of the scriptures that speak to us, who you are and what you will for us. We pray that as we open them, that we would see, open our eyes, as the psalmist said, to help us see wonderful things in your law. So we pray that. We pray, may the words of the preacher's mouth and the meditation of the hearer's hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said. Good to see you this morning. You can be seated. If you're new with us today, my name is Andrew. I'm the lead pastor here. It's a joy to have you in our house. That story about the 750 uh, shoes is such a great story. Thinking also about we're coming off of a week, friends, where we had 2,000 kids from across the country in for our annual Desperation Student Conference. And uh, so that was Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, all day. And to see these kids, you know, ages 11 all the way up to 18, to see them session after session after session, dialed into the scriptures, like listening to the word of God and opening themselves up to the Holy Spirit and then flooding the altars because they're so hungry for a touch from heaven. It just made me think like, I'm so grateful to be part of this church. And you, whether you know it or not, maybe you're here, this is the first time that you're here. But if you're in this building, you're part of something good that is happening in Colorado Springs. Like Pentecost is still happening. Like God is still pouring out his spirit and forming a people for himself who are themselves, like the, in the way that they live. They're a testimony of God's will and his desire for the world. So it's such a good thing. We're in a little mini-series this summer. As we prepare for fall, this fall we're going to jump into a series on the book of Nehemiah that will start in like late August. But little mini-series this summer talking and thinking about the life of the church together since it is the season of Pentecost where we think about what it means to be a church. And uh, this series that we're in is called The Church as a sign. How is it that the church's life is a sign of the kingdom? And I spent some time last week, if you're with us, we talked about singing as a sign of the kingdom, our worship. But I gave a definition of a sign in the message last week. And I talked about how a sign uh, reveals to us God's will and purpose for the whole world, like where he's taking all things. But a sign also, when you pay attention to it, it opens up for us a vision of what God is doing in this moment. So the kingdom, not just over there, but the kingdom among us right now. By the sign, you can actually see what's happening in our midst right now. I want to give you one more definition of a sign this morning just to help you think a little bit more deeply about what we mean when we say the word sign in the biblical imagination. A sign is a thing that has a surplus of meaning attached to it. A sign is something that, me, that uh, it means more than what it actually is. So a sign is something that has a surplus of meaning attached to it. It means more than what it actually is. You're sitting here and you're like, that was really confusing. Let me give you 
an example, real quick. Put the next slide up on the screen. What is that, everybody? That's a horse. That's a nice horse with an orange mane and demon eyes. That's... You're like, you stupid idiot. It's not a horse. That's the Broncos, the Denver Broncos. But I'm not wrong, am I? That is a horse. Somebody testify. That's a horse. And it's much more than a horse. Right? We see that. And it evokes the whole history of this football team, their highs, their lows. It evokes for me, I'm not a Broncos fan, I'm a Packers fan. So it evokes a very dark moment for me. 1997, my little brother Rob, when the Packers lost the Super Bowl, man, like he went like catatonic for like a week, like didn't, (laughs) it's very dark. But But a whole constellation of associations with that, and not just associations about the past, but there's like hopes for the future attached to that, right? Russell Wilson is in town, right? So we're excited about this year and what's going to happen, and who knows? Maybe there will be a great renaissance of the Broncos and they'll win the Super Bowl. But uh, is that a horse, ladies and gentlemen? Yes, and it's a lot more than a horse. Give you another example. Uh, What's this here? This is a wooden letter T. You're sitting there, it's like, it's almost blasphemous, you know, like, geez, preacher, watch out. But I'm not wrong. This is a letter T, you know, and made out of, but no, stupid idiot. <laughs> Sorry for my language. Uh, it's much, kids don't say that. Uh, it's much more than that, right? This was a symbol of Roman power. In the first century, political dissidents, people that didn't go along with what Rome wanted, they crucified them. On crosses, and of course, our Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnate one, he was crucified on a Roman cross, which is so bizarre because then what he did is he actually took the meaning of the cross and he turned it inside out. That this thing that was an instrument of torture and political oppression actually now becomes a source of life, a source of the kingdom of God. And so this thing has a lot more attached to it, right? There's a surplus of meaning that's attached to it. And this actually has a very personal meaning for me because a friend of mine, this is made out of olive wood from a tree in Israel. And a friend of mine on a trip to Israel about 15 years ago got this. I was his pastor and he came and he gave this to me as a gift. His name is Michael. And so when I sit for prayer in the morning, I always sit, I have this on my little like nightstand thing by my couch. And when I pray, a lot of times I'll I'll hold this cross as I pray. And so I've logged miles in prayer with this. Is this a wooden letter T? Well, yeah, sure, and it's so much more than that. That's what a sign is. A sign is something that God recruits for his use, and he adds meaning to so that we can see something about who he is and what he's trying to accomplish in the world. You think about uh, the Bible's full of signs. I think about one of the great signs in the biblical witness is the exodus from Egypt. God delivers his people up out of Egypt and begins to lead them into the land of freedom. And you could look at that moment in the biblical story and go, well, really, that's just kind of, that was bad management by Egypt is what that was, you know. If they had done a better job being nice to Israel, maybe Israel would have stayed and all of that. But, but what the Bible says is it goes, no, 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 no. This thing is not just a political misfortune for Israel or for Egypt. Uh, this thing is actually a symbol of the mighty deeds of God. And if you pay attention to what God is doing here, it'll give you some sense of what God is up to in the whole world. Are you tracking with me? That's what a sign 
is. And so here is this moment. There is this moment that we come to and worship every week after we get done preaching. That we take bread and we take cup and we offer it up to the Lord. And somehow this moment has tremendous meaning for us. This moment of communion actually is a sign. Watch what Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul says, for what I received from the Lord, I also pass on to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed, what did he do? He took bread and when he gave thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body. Okay, The bread all of a sudden has become more than bread, which is for you. Next slide. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is what? The new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So somehow we come to this moment of communion and bread and cup start saying more than they say by themselves. The question is, what do they say? How are these things a sign of the kingdom? I want to give you three dimensions of what happens at the Lord's table and what God is speaking to us every time we come to the table. Number one, the table tells us that our God does not despise the created world in which our lives are situated. The table tells us that our God does not despise the created world in which our lives are situated. You think about how the biblical story opens. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God works through this whole process of creating land and tree and skies and seas. And he puts the whole thing together. And then he creates human beings as the crown of his creation. And we read this in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 31. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Do you know that there is not a square inch of the created order that God has not looked at and said, this is very good. All that God makes is good. Do you remember what they said about Jesus in the Gospels? They said, he has done everything well. Well, they could say that of Jesus because the creation is saying that of God his Father long before that. That God does everything well. The trees are done well. It's very good. And the land is very good. And our bodies are very good. And our kids are very good even when they're not very good. They're very good. One of the things that the, the church has always taught is that this moment of creation is actually not just one discrete moment in time, but that whatever happens in Genesis 1 is something that God is always doing all the time. And so God is actually literally always, all the time, saying over our world, it's very good. Even under sin, even though things are disordered and warped, God is still saying, it is very good which is why he decides to come and make a dwelling among us. John chapter 1, verse 14. The word, Scripture says, became what? Think about that. Immaterial God took on the, the conditions of our creatureliness, our materiality, in order to save this. He became flesh. He made a home among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came to the Father, full of grace and truth. And John goes on to explain the motive that God had for doing this. John 3 and verse 16, you know it well. For God so what? Loved what? He loved the world. That he sent his one and only son that whoever believed in him should not perish but have eternal. 
God does not despise the world that we live in, brothers and sisters. He doesn't despise the lives that we lead. He loves these lives. He loves this world. He loves bread and he loves juice and he loves the mountains and the trees. And he loves good music and he loves good food. He loves all of it. And somehow in our Christianity, sometimes there's this thing that seeps in where we locate the center of Christian spirituality either in inwardness, that Christianity is all about like this. I know there's stuff going on kind of out there. But really what Christianity is about is like establishing a personal relationship with God where I commune with the divine in the inner chambers of my heart to the exclusion of all the things that are going on out there. You remember the old song, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his full face, and the things of the earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I love that song. And I think there's a way to sing that song that's biblical. I think that sometimes we get so confused by things that we just need to refocus on God. But there's a way to sing that song that's also unbiblical. Oh, yeah, I'm just focusing on Jesus and, you know, who cares about the environment and who cares about my neighbors and who cares about what's going on in our country and who cares about who cares about who cares because it's all about just me. No, that's a sub-biblical sentiment. So sometimes we locate the center of spirituality in inwardness the inner life. Other times we locate the center of spirituality in the after life, right? That Christianity is all about what's going to happen at the end of all things when God acts. Uh, some of us, you know, some, I, the way that I was born and raised, you know, like the end of all things, like the destination was that we'd actually exit these bodies and we'd go to be with God in heaven somewhere out there. And even some of our songs reflect this. Think about Amazing Grace, right? That last verse, when we've been, where? Somewhere else other than here, bright shining as the sun. We know let's give it a t- It locates, I love Amazing Grace, but that song locates salvation somewhere other than right here. And Jesus didn't come here to save us to somewhere else. Jesus came here to save this stuff all around us. One of the great writers of the 20th century, a man by the name of Wendell Berry, Kentucky farmer, Christian. And Barry understands this as well as I think anybody. In all of his fiction and in his poetry, Barry understands the dignity and the value of the created order. One of my favorite poems of his is this. So I'm gonna, this is a poetry reading in church, ladies and gentlemen. And I know you're grown up enough to receive this. And uh, this one's a doozy. So here it goes from Wendell Berry. He writes, Oh, saints, if I'm eligible for this prayer, though less than worthy of this dear desire, and if your prayers have influence in heaven... Let my place there be lower than your own. For I know how you longed here where you lived as exiles for the presence of the essential being and maker and knower of all things. But because of my unruliness or some erring virtue in me never rightly schooled, some error clear and dear, my life has not taught me your desire for flight, dismattered, pure, and free. He says, I long instead for the heaven of creatures, of seasons, of day and night. Heaven enough for me would be this world as I know it, but redeemed of our abuse of it and of one another. It would be the heaven of knowing again. There is no marrying in heaven, and I submit, but even so, I would like to know my wife again, and both of us young again, and I remembering always how I loved her when she was old. And I would like to know my children again, and all my family, all my dear ones, to see, to hear, to hold more carefully than before, to study them lingeringly. As one studies old verses, committing them to heart forever, I would like to know my friends 
and my companions, men and women, horses and dogs, and all the ages of our lives here in this place that I've watched over all my life and all its moods and seasons, never enough. I will be leaving how many beauties overlooked. Oh, painful heaven, he says this would be, for I would know by it how far I have fallen short, for I haven't paid enough attention, haven't been grateful enough, and yet this pain would be the measure of my love, for in eternity's once and now, pain would place me surely in the heaven of my earthly love. What has God come to save? This. Every last atom of our created universe. Do you understand that what Paul says in Ephesians is that God in Christ is summing up all things in himself. The energy of salvation is not to discard our world and do away with it, but to save it and to set it firmly at the Father's feet inside his love. John Calvin said it so beautifully, the dignity of the created order, when he said this, that the world is a theater for the display of the divine goodness, but the church, he said, is the orchestra. That when the church gets together and sings its songs and opens the scriptures together, and when the church in that climactic moment comes to the table of the Lord, we're playing the music that illuminates what's going on in this great theater of God's glory, where God takes bread and cup things that we have made, things that we have put together, and we offer them up to God, and God blesses them and fills them with his spirit so that by these ordinary things, bread and cup, we're taken into a relationship with God and our lives are saved. So it is that as we offer our life and the life of our world up to God, that God takes it and he blesses it and fills it with his presence and gives it back to us savingly as the kingdom of God. Are you with me this morning, brothers and sisters? The table of the Lord tells us that our God does not despise the created order that you and I are in, that our lives are situated in, but he's trying to save it. Rowan Williams says it so well when he says that reverence for the bread and wine of the Eucharist is the beginning of reverence for the whole world in which the giving of God's glory is pulsating beneath the surface of every moment. Communion teaches us to discern the presence of God in, with, and under all things. Are you tracking with me this morning, 11 a.m.? Second thing that the table of the Lord says to us is that the table tells us that relationships are at the very heart of reality. Relationships are at the very heart of of reality. We know this because of what we confess God to be in the creeds and canons of Christian thought. We say that our God is one God in. Yeah, there's a song to that effect. One God in three persons. God in three persons. Blessed Trinity. The God from before all time and after all time is never not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is a community of persons. And there was never a moment in God's history when God was just kind of a single solitary being. And then all of a sudden it was like, well, you know, it'd be more fun if we had more people. And God kind of went boof and became three. That didn't happen. God is irreducibly Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Relationships are at the heart of the divine life. If God is the bedrock of reality, then we know that relationality is the bedrock of reality. And we also know this because we read it in Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, 
Then God said, tellingly, let us. Who? Yeah, not a trick question. Who said that? God is who? Father, Son, and Holy Trinity. This relational being has a counsel and says, let us make mankind how? In our image and in our likeness so that they might rule over all the stuff. Next slide. So God created mankind in his own image. He created, uh, in the image of God, he created them. Then watch this. What happens? Male and female, he created them both. And so this relational God, when he makes human beings, makes them irreducibly relational right from the start. You and I are designed to belong in right relationship, which is why Jesus, when he's questioned in the Gospels, somebody comes in one day and says, Master, what's the greatest commandment in the law? How do you read it? And Jesus says what? What are you going to do first? Love who? The Lord your God with all your heart. This is catechism class. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. So he's saying you're going to be in right relationship with God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But then he says the second is like unto it. And what is it? Love your neighbor neighbor as yourselves. He says on this, this is what this, the whole law and the prophets is all about this. It's all about trying to put relationships back together. And when we're related rightly to God and rightly to one another, guys, it's a taste of heaven on earth, isn't it? And you've had moments in your life where you've experienced this, where all of a sudden it'll just kind of come together. You're in the presence of God with other people and the joy of relationship breaks out. We do, um, one of the things that Mandy and I love to do is uh, we host a monthly dinner at our house. New Life East staff and their families all come over and we just throw a party. There's no agenda. We put out a bunch of good food and we just see what happens. And we've uh, had some staff transitions over the last year. Some people joining our teams. Katie Hoover back there joined our team and Riley Olson joined our team. And uh, who else joined the team? Rory and Brooke, Mandy and Jenna. But they were always kind of part of the team sort of. But these are our new admins. Do you know that? Mandy and Jenna, they're the New Life East admin together. Power team. Amazing. Give it up for Mandy and Jenna. Rory and Brooke Green coming in, Andy and Joanna Rosier. I mean, all these people coming in. And so like the first couple months of everybody being together, there was this like kind of adjustment period and how's that going to go and da, da, da. And then we had like this one dinner where all of a sudden, I don't know what happened, but it's like everybody, their guard just dropped. And we started talking about our favorite music and our favorite movies. And I found out, I should have been able to guess this, but I found out Colin's favorite movie is A Man from Snowy River. And this is the only congregation of all the eight New Life congregations that would issue a cheer that big for the man from Snowy River. And that's beautiful and it's amazing. And so Colin, because I'm friends with Colin, I love Colin. I watched the man from Snowy River the next week and my life was immeasurably enriched by it. And we found out that Andy Rosier, I don't know if Andy's in here, but Andy's favorite movie is Batman, A Dark Knight, The Dark Knight Rises, I think. Yeah, that one. So that's a little on the darker side than a man from Snowy River. That's why he wears black all the time because the Batman thing and we spent that night just laughing and tears rolling down our cheeks and kind of making fun of each other a little bit and everybody and you just didn't I didn't I didn't want the night to end I could have done that until three in the morning us just being together and we sent everybody off that night and I remember going to sleep that night and just sleeping the sleep of the blessed because that that's it that that's it that right there that's the whole thing Do you know when we talk about God's salvation, we mean that. 
Whatever happened in that moment, that's a sign. That's a sign of what God's doing in our midst right now and where he's taking his world. God doesn't have any agenda in salvation greater than that. He's trying to bring us into relationship with one another. He's trying to put the whole world back together. He's trying to create moments like that. Our endlessly, infinitely, joyfully relational God is trying to create moments like that in every home, in every marriage, between parents and all of their children, in every relationship across all of the cosmos. That is what God is doing. I need more reaction from you. It's the whole thing. Salvation isn't something other than that. Think about the end of the biblical story, Revelation 19.9. Behold, God says, the marriage supper of the Lamb. In the end of the book of Revelation, if anybody is hungry, come on in. If you're thirsty, come on in. Do you just want to party? Get out in here. We're just throwing a party. You go, well, shouldn't I do something? No, just respond to the invitation. It's all right there. God is fixing to throw a huge party with great food and wine and all the fixings and all the accoutrements of it. It's all going to be there. And he's just saying to humanity, do you, want, do you want in on the party? And do you know what we do when we gather at the table every single week? We go, we're going to do that party ahead of time. We're not waiting until the end of all things, but every week we're going to get together and we're going to sing boisterously like we're at a wedding reception. And we're going to eat food, the bread and the cup, like we're at a wedding reception. And we're going to surrender our hearts to the moment and celebrate all that's happening because we actually are the bride and the groom is coming to us. And like the whole cosmos is filled with joy. Are you with me this morning? Rowan Williams says it like this. He says, for Christians, next slide, to share Holy Communion means to live as people who know that they are always guests, that they have been welcomed, and that they are wanted. In Holy Communion, Jesus Christ tells us that he wants our company. It's all God has ever been looking for. Get on in here. Enjoy friendship with me and friendship with one another because there's nothing to fear and there's nothing to hide from and everything has already been done for you. Just say yes. Communion tells us that relationship is at the heart of reality, but it also tells us, and this is important to say, the table tells us that sin has disrupted all our relationships and that only the forgiving grace of God can make them whole. The table tells us that sin has disrupted all our relationships and that only the forgiving grace of God can make them whole. We're not just celebrating at the table uh, kind of kumbaya fest and everything is, you know, like the Lego movie, you know, everything is awesome, right? But that's not. Because we're not living in a world where everything is awesome, are we? We're living in a world that's been profoundly disordered by the impact of sin, which is why part of what constellates in terms of meaning at the table is the idea of the forgiveness of sins. Listen to what Jesus says, Matthew recording this moment when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. He took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and he said, drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. 
See, what sin does is it disorders our relationships with one another. That, that's where all the pain and misery of our life come from, is that relationships have been pulled out of whack. Even our relationship with the created order has been pulled out of whack. So what redemption is, is dealing with that breach, that breakdown in relationships somehow. Mandy and I are going on 22 years of marriage. We've got four kids. Our oldest, Ethan, is going to be 16 in a second here, all the way down to 10 years old. And so that's, it's a lot of relationship. And I love our family, and I think our family is amazing, and we have great times together, and the Lord has done amazing things in our household, and every, it's, it's beautiful. And in 22 years of being a family together, there is not a single day, and I mean this, there is not a single day that has gone by where there wasn't a need for forgiveness and reconciliation to take place. The only way relationships survive is when we go, oh gosh, that thing that I just did, that's on me. I didn't mean to do that, or I did mean to do that, and that was the wrong thing to do. But either way, I've wounded this relationship. I've harmed this relationship in some way. And so I am so sorry. Would you please forgive me of that? And also, what can I do to make it right? Our marriage... Like we just wouldn't be here apart from moment after moment after moment after moment after moment of that, of getting humble, asking for forgiveness, and then receiving the grace of forgiveness. I think about my kids. You know, some of the reason I think that parents and kids become alienated from one another is that parents are too proud to get down and humble themselves before their kids when they wrong their kids. And I think about with our kids, and all of our kids could attest to this. I think about the countless times I have messed up with them. And I've gotten down, and this was especially important when they were real little, I'd get all the way down to their level. And I'd go, I'd go Liam, or I'd go Bella, Gabe, Ethan. What daddy said and what daddy did was wrong. I have no business treating you like that. I have no business saying those things to you. And from the bottom of my heart, I am so sorry. Would you please forgive me? And if you've never had a five-year-old look you in the eye or put their hand on your shoulder and say, Daddy, it's okay. I forgive you. Then you have not known the grace of God. <laughs> the only way that relationships survive is because we own the sin that takes place in them. And we humble ourselves. We do what we can to make it right. And then we receive the grace of forgiveness. That's the beautiful thing, by the way, about the scriptures. Is that the scriptures are so utterly realistic about our life together. They don't kind of look out and go, oh, everybody. You shouldn't all be fighting and being like mean to each other. If we could all just hold hands and sing kumbaya. You know, just everybody just get along. The Bible doesn't do that. The Bible is utterly realistic about what happens inside of our relationships. And it knows how those relationships can begin to go right. Watch this. I'm going to take you to the book of Leviticus. And with this, we're going to be, begin to make the turn into communion. But watch this. The Lord is instituting all of the sacrifices that help make life right. And the Lord said to Moses, Leviticus chapter 6 and verse 1, If anybody sins and is unfaithful to the Lord by deceiving a neighbor about something entrusted to them or left in their care or about something stolen or if they cheat their neighbor, next slide, or if they find lost property and lie about it. Or if they swear falsely about any such sin that people may commit. It's like all of these ways. You can wrong your neighbor. 
You can steal something, overlook something, take something, say a bad thing about them. There's all kinds of ways. This is just the tip of the iceberg, right, of how we wrong one another and wound each other. The Lord says when they sin in any of these ways and realize their guilt, what must they do? He says they must return what they've stolen or taken by extortion. Next slide. Or what was entrusted to them or the lost property they found, whatever it was they swore falsely about. So you've got to go, like, if you've done damage to the neighbor, you've got to go back to them and try to fix what you messed up. But not only that, you add a fifth of the value to it and you give it to the owner on the day that they present their gift guilt offering. You're like, you're actually paying them extra for the time that that wounded them. They were away, you know, that they didn't have the thing in their possession. Do you see what's happening here? This is genuine repentance. When you know that you've made a mess in somebody else's life, and so you go, oh my gosh, I am so sorry for, and I'm not just, you know, I'm not just going, well, yeah, I guess I'm so sorry. Would you please forgive me? It's sincere. It's genuine, right? You're trying to make it right. And that's a moment where forgiving grace all of a sudden floods in. But watch this. And this is so fascinating. The Lord knows that just us doing whatever we can do with one another is not enough to make the thing go away. Because as a penalty, they must bring to the priest that is the Lord their guilt offering, a ram from the flock, one without defect and of the proper value, verse 7. And in this way, the priest will make atonement for them before the Lord, and they will be forgiven for any of the things they did that made them guilty. In other words, it's not just the stuff that we do with one another that makes things right, but somehow there's this other thing, this sacrifice, by which all of that residue of unforgiveness and bitterness, where the relationship was disordered, somehow that all is taken care of in this greater economy of the forgiving grace of God. Have you ever noticed that? Sometimes you do the best that you can possibly do to make things right with someone else, and it's still not quite enough. Or have you ever noticed that sometimes there are things that are done to you that no amount of I'm sorry can undo? I think about, I think about people that have lost loved ones from murder or violence. It doesn't matter how much the person who is the guilty party says, I'm sorry, there's no undoing the hurt of that, is there? There's no bringing that, there's always this residue, this like leftover part. And the Bible knows about that. And what it says to us is, if you're going to belong to this economy of God's grace and forgiveness, you've got to be willing to say you're sorry. You've got to be willing to extend forgiveness to other people. But the human action by itself is not enough. It's the action of God that takes all that has been disordered by sin, all that's been pulled out of proportion by sin, and it puts it all back together again. And so when we come to the table, we're declaring that the broken body of Jesus has taken all of the brokenness of the world into it. And when we come to the table, we're declaring that the poured out blood, the shed blood of Jesus is enough for the remission, not just of a couple individual little sins, but it's poured out for many for the remission of how many sins? All the sins. So that when there's leftover in our lives, somebody's wronged us in a way that cannot be undone. We go, God, here I am. And somehow the grace of God comes and it begins to heal us and make us right. But when we come to the table of the Lord, we're carrying things that we've done to other people. And God goes, hey, if you're going to come and receive this forgiveness, 
would you also be a means of forgiveness and reconciliation? And we go, oh, we're gripped in our conscience. And we run back out and we start making things right again. Guys, I'm saying to you that the table declares the forgiveness of sins. And if we want to be touched by the grace of the table, then we're going to have to be willing to let that grace go all the way down. And that's both good news for us and it's a challenge for us to live consistently with what this table says. Can you receive that this morning? Let's stand together. Jesus, come. Jesus, come. We're holding before you, Lord Jesus, the many ways in which we have been wounded by others. We're holding before you, Lord Jesus, the many ways in which we have wounded others. We're holding before you all the ways in which there are things that we need to make right that we haven't made right. We're holding before you the many ways in which there are things that need to be made right for us that haven't been made right. And we're surrendering all of that this morning into the economy of your forgiveness. We're saying yes. We're like entering into agreement with you about what this table says over our lives. That Jesus Christ... His body was broken. It is finished. And his blood was shed. It is finished. And now the finished work of God in Christ is making its way into the world through our lives. So we yield ourselves to you here. Lord, where there are places in our lives where we need to go and make things right, or we need to humble ourselves, or we need to just let people go, we need to forgive them, give us the grace to do that this morning. And in all of those places where it just hurts still, and it feels like nothing that nothing that any human being can do can make it right, we pray that grace would wash in here at the table. Come, make all things new, we're asking. We're asking it in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said. We're gonna sing this song of worship here in response, friends, and I'm also gonna invite our altar ministry team to be available at the sides of the auditorium here. Might be that something as I was preaching this morning, Something just kind of got stirred up in you. Something you need to make right. Something you need to confess. Or you just need prayer for something. As we worship, I'll invite you to step aside and go receive prayer for that. And then Pastor Colin is going to lead us to the table in just a few moments. Let's worship together.
so we come to the table. You are welcome here. The table is open to all who have called upon the name of the Lord. Scripture says that those who do that, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive from all unrighteousness. Would you hold these elements in your hand? If you need some, Kathleen has some by the door. You can get some more. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed after he'd given thanks, would you give thanks right now? Thanks that he, that he calls you by name, that you have a seat at this table. After he'd given, done that, he, he took bread. Would you hold that wafer in your hand? Would you break it? He was pierced for your transgressions. He said, this is my body, which is going to be broken for you. Would you receive this gift? The same night, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He says, no longer do you need to receive forgiveness by the sacrifice of animals. Now when I look at you because of my son Jesus, I see my son, my daughter, forgiven, loved. Would you just look at this and say, thank you, Jesus. Would you receive the cup? Thank you, Jesus. This is the cup that washes us white as snow. Would you worship? What can wash Way my sin, nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus.
Aren't you glad you came to church today? God is good to us. Oh, Jesus. And so I pray over these, your people, as they go. The ones over whom you said it is finished. Indeed, you said it over the whole world. Forgiveness. It's bought, paid for. You just got to live in it. That's it. And so I pray over them. I pray, Lord, that you would bless them and keep them. <laughs> I pray that you would turn your face towards them and be gracious to them. Lord, lift up your bright, smiling countenance upon them and grant them your peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, grace, mercy, and peace be with you. Our altar ministry team is still available if you need prayer for anything. They'd love to pray with you. Come see us at Connect Central. If you're new, we would love to meet you. Enjoy the beautiful, sunny day that we have out there. God made it very good. So go enjoy it. Winter is very bad, though. I've got a bone to pick with the Lord about that. I will say that's not a good thing. Summer, enjoy it while it's here. You are loved. New Life East, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. We'll see you soon.